This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. This UQ Law and the Future of War special episode is a reproduction of the UQ Pulsus Flashpoint panel held on the 8th of March, War in Ukraine, hosted by Seb Kampf with Sarah Tate, Andrew Phillips, Christian Roy-Smith and Lauren Sanders. Hi and welcome. Two welcomes here. First of all, welcome to International Women's Day, but more pertinent to being here. Welcome to our special event on war in the Ukraine. My name is Dr. Seb Kempf. I'm a senior lecturer in peace and conflict studies here in the School of Political Science and International Studies, and I'll be chairing our special event here today. Before we kick things off, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners and their custodianship of the lands on which we meet here today and pay my respect to their ancestors and descendants. Great to see you all, both here in the room, also for you coming in through Zoom online. The events that have been unfolding in Europe over the last fortnight, roughly, obviously have, have left many of us shocked, puzzled, questioning, sometimes angry, maybe afraid. We've seen it in the news. It has dominated world politics. It has probably been part of a lot of conversations, discussions we've all have had with one another over the last 10 to 14 days. And so I think it's only appropriate for us as the School of Political Science International Studies to run an event. And we're very glad that we have a colleague from the School of Law also join us for it here. And of course, a very stellar lineup of experts who in different ways can cover and speak to the different nuances we find about the war in Ukraine. So let me quickly introduce them to you. Okay, so we have on my far end, on your left here, Dr. Lawrence Saunders, a senior lecturer in the School of Law. And Lawrence's research is predominantly focused on international criminal law, international humanitarian law, and domestic counterterrorism law. Then we have, ladies first still, on my immediate right, on your um, right as well, we've got uh, Dr. Sarah Teet, who is a senior research fellow in pulses and whose research focuses predominantly on Chinese foreign policy in relations to international intervention, peacekeeping, and humanitarian emergency responses. And then in the middle here, we've got further to my right, uh, Associate Professor Andrew Phillips, who um, is an associate professor in international relations and in strategy in his research and to focus is predominantly on the global state in, uh, systems evolution from the 1500s until the present. And he's interested in questions of contemporary security challenges. And then last but not least, we've got Chris Roy Smith, who is a professor of international relations. Chris' research focuses on the institutional nature and evolution of the international system, issues of international theory, international law, human rights, and most recently, cultural diversity and international order. The format we're going to run this in is as follows. We're going to have each of our four panelists kick this off for five minutes with their kind of takeaway messages, 
how they look at this conflict. And then we turn it over for Q&A with you guys here in the room and also for people through Zoom here as well. Okay, so welcome again. And I think I'll ask Lauren to kick this off. Thank you, Lauren. Checking if you can hear up the back. Yep, great. Um, well, thanks for having me today. Um, I think uh, to start off with, as far as the international legal issues are concerned, they probably uh, create a fairly good uh, bookmark for what the political uh, issues are that follow in respect of uh, what has been denounced by the international community as an illegal invasion of Ukraine. So I want to cover the three main areas of international law that are triggered or that are affected by this particular uh, issue. The first is known as a use, uh, use ad bellum or the laws to resort to the use of force or the law of going to war. Then talking about the laws during uh, the conduct of hostilities, so international humanitarian law. Um, most militaries will refer to that as the laws of armed conflict. And then I also want to touch on the issue of enforcement because there's been a lot of discussion about uh, war crimes, the crime of aggression, and what could be done in, uh, in terms of holding individuals to account. So in respect of the actual uh, invasion itself, I think um, we have in some commentaries forgotten that Ukraine has been in an armed conflict of some description since 2013. Um, so then whether it was non-international or an internationalised non-international armed conflict um, is up for debate, but it's quite clear that as of the Russian military entering into the Ukrainian territory uh, last week, the week before last, that we're now in an international armed conflict. Now, this invasion breaches one of the fundamental premises of the international legal order, which is that it is unlawful to acquire territory through the use of force. So the United Nations Charter Article 2.4 makes it quite clear that that's an unlawful action. And effectively, the post-World War II order was premised around that concept that right is no longer, so might is no longer right, that you can't acquire territory uh, through the use of force. So... Um, the International Criminal, uh, Criminal, the Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, the United Nations General Assembly Resolution has all recognised that this action by Russia is not legitimate. Um, there is no justification under the current international legal order for those actions. You might have heard uh, discussions or suggestions that uh, there was an action to prevent genocide in the Donetsk and the, uh, the uh, Luhansk region, uh, that Russia was claiming that their action was in response to, uh, to that genocide. Um, the International uh, Court of Justice has come out and said flatly that the facts don't support that and then that's not true, and more to the point, and that's not a justification to invade another country. In the same way that there was a declaration by Putin recognising those two regions as new states, under international law, that also doesn't hold sway on the basis that those states, those regions, don't qualify for statehood under any international legal test. Equally, the United Nations General Assembly resolution uh, rejected that premise outright. And so in a quite unusual or um, irregular activity, noting that Russia has a veto power under the United Nations Security Council, um, there was no United Nations Security Council resolution uh, that was adopted in, substantive, uh, in a substantive way to authorise any measures uh, in response to the invasion. But a resolution did pass that uh, passed the United Nations General Assembly, 
where all members took a vote where they denounced the action and, and stated that there was no recognition uh, of those regional areas as independent states. Noting, of course, the test for statehood includes things like being recognised by other states and also that they have the capacity, that that state has the capacity to enter into government and to engage in international relations with other countries, which those two states don't have. Claims of denazification and demilitarization because of threats of NATO expansion also didn't hold sway or don't hold sway as justification for the resort to the use of force. Effectively, the only lawful use of force under the international legal order is in defense of your country. So in this case, Ukraine is lawfully using force under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter to respond to the threats of force or to respond to the military invasion by Russia. So as far as the actual uh, resort to force in the first instance, it's, it's widely recognised that it's unlawful. A lot of people have commented, though, that this is, a, this is a watershed moment for the international legal order, that this is recognised or this is a demonstration of the collapse of that legal order. Um, and I think a, probably a, a better way to look at this is that whilst there has been a red line that has absolutely been crossed, um, this allows an opportunity for states to coalesce in their response to that red line that has been crossed. So this is just one instance of the charter that has been established since World War II not working, um, but in the same way that we don't throw out our domestic criminal code because murder is illegal and someone murders someone, um, in this case, because someone has unlawfully invaded another country, we're not going to throw out the entire legal regime that is in existence to create rules and then sanctions and countermeasures to respond to those people that don't follow those particular rules. So that's the big picture international law piece. Now that there is an international armed conflict, within that international armed conflict, because it is a state-on-state -state conflict, so we're talking two military forces against each other, the international humanitarian law applies, so we're talking Geneva Convention laws. So because it is international, Geneva Conventions 1, uh, 1 through to 4 will apply. Things like people who are being detained who are from the military have prisoner of war status, for example. But the broader set of uh, customary international law rules that apply to how, uh, how conflicts are meant to be conducted lawfully um, are in play. So we've seen a lot of conduct that would breach those fundamental principles, things like targeting civilians. I think today was the third or the fourth attempt at humanitarian corridors to be established to let civilians um, escape the conflict zones. Things like targeting uh, facilities with dangerous forces, so nuclear weapons, so nu nuclear power facilities, for example, are a really great um, indication of, of that particular uh, issue being breached. So it is unlawful to target something that contains dangerous forces for obvious reasons, it's unlawful to target nuclear facilities. Um, targeting of civilians, uh, in, indiscriminate attacks, all of those things. Um, when it comes to those breaches of international um, humanitarian law, the third consideration is really about enforcement. So People have been talking about how to hold Putin account, uh, accountable for the actual invasion itself. And then secondly, what to do with the individuals who breach the international um, humanitarian law rules that apply to the conduct of conflict itself. So as far as the international humanitarian law rules are concerned, um, everyone will have heard that the International Criminal Court has opened an investigation now. Um, whilst the Ukraine has agreed to the jurisdiction, they're not a member of the Rome Statute, um, neither is Russia. While they've agreed to the jurisdiction from 2014 till now, it means the ICC can investigate war crimes. Um, but the ICC has a pretty high threshold in dealing with anyone who has committed these offences. So it will be in the future or during the course of this conduct uh, or this conflict that there will be um, 
investigations into misconduct for those higher level, um, higher level instances of breaches of the law. As far as the lower levels of breaches are concerned, so the individual soldiers, there's an obligation upon the states to actually take account or to, uh, to punish their own individual members. Um, and as far as Putin is concerned, from the aggression side of the House, this has really demonstrated that there is a bit of a lacuna in international law when we have a veto-holding member of the United Nations Security Council committing the aggression. So there have been some calls um, for a special tribunal to be established, similar to what occurred uh, following World War II for Nuremberg, to try and address that potential position of, of aggression. A whole heap of other complications have come out from a legal perspective as well, looking at things like um, the International Court of Justice Declare, uh, declaring provisional measures if the genocide case that's uh, before them is, is decided in, in Ukraine's favour in a timely fashion, looking at social media from a documentary perspective but also for its use for recording uh, crimes uh, and then also on the other side of that thinking about the deep fakes that we're seeing as well, so how can we rely on what we're seeing on the internet to support those uh, convictions. Um, and the other thing from an Australian perspective is the laws of neutrality. So you will have heard that Australia has uh, committed cyber expertise and also provided some weapons to the Ukraine, uh, to the Ukrainian military forces. There is uh, a set of rules that relate to neutrality at international law as well that say that if you're staying out of the conflict, you have to stay out of the conflict effectively. So we're now talking about uh, consideration of belligerent neutrality. So we've picked a side, we've said that uh, Russia is the aggressor, so we can provide this support to the Ukraine legally and still not be a party to the conflict. Um, and then finally, some complications with civilians in the actual uh, conflict as well, being targeted by Russia and also partaking um, in the conflict. So just some other food for thought. But thank you. Great. We will. Thank you very much. Which, of course, we'll have time to pick up and go in, in depth as well. Thanks so much, Lauren. Uh, Chris. Over to you. Okay, so some of what I'm going to say will overlap with what Lauren's done. Um, but, uh, but what I'd like to do is to really shift the gear a little bit and focus on what the implications of the Ukrainian war for the future of the international order might be? What challenge does it pose to what we often call the liberal international order or the post-1945 international order? Now, this it's worth recalling that this, uh, this question of the sort of fate of the liberal international order has been occupying thousands and thousands of pages of uh, scholarly manuscripts over the past uh, five to ten years. Uh, the liberal international order is widely seen as being in crisis. But the debate has largely focused on a number of apparent weaknesses or frailties with this order. And I think the principal ones have to do with, first of all, the sort of weakening political foundations of the liberal international order, focused principally on the decline of the relative decline of the United States and the broader West. And in particular, a sort of declining will to lead the international order on the part of the United States and the West. So that would be the sort of first thing that people focus on. The second thing has been the paralysis of multilateral institutions and their lack of fit for purpose. So not only have multilateral institutions not been particularly good at dealing with their traditional brief, you know, managing the world economy, 
dealing with certain forms of uh, you know, humanitarian crises and so forth, but also that they are charged with now with meeting a whole series of new purposes that they just, like climate change, that they just seem incapable of dealing with in any effective way. The third thing has been, Lauren has touched in some, some respects on this with the Ukraine crisis, has been the sense, sort of sense of a weakening of international law, the international law's inability to really constrain the kinds of things or to, or to regulate the kinds of things that it's intended to do. Uh, and then the fourth, uh, and this is widely discussed in the context of the liberal international order, is, is what some scholars have called the end times of human rights, that the great heyday of the promotion of human rights is, is failing and that what we're seeing is an increase in, in human rights violations across the world. Now, I think that the Ukrainian war touches on all of those aspects of the crisis of the liberal international order, but I think it also cuts far deeper into the foundations of this international order. And I mean this in three senses. The first is that the Ukrainian war or the Russian invasion of the Ukraine is a direct challenge to the underlying constitutional principles of the post-1945 order. And that principle is that political authority on the globe should be distributed on the principle of territorial sovereignty, not on the basis of empire. The second challenge and way in which this war cuts deep into the foundations has to do with the justifications that have been used on the part of the Russians for this invasion. Now, of course, there are a number of different layers to these justifications. There's the justification that, uh, that, uh, that this was to prevent uh, a non-existing uh, genocide from taking place. But the principal justification, uh, if you read Putin's writings, is that the invasion is justified to re-establish a historical unity between Russia and the Ukraine. That, um, now, this is a justification that in international terms is decidedly anachronistic. It's a 19th century and early 20th century justification for the use of force. It's a principle that the last time we saw a great power in the international system use that as a justification for invading another territory and seizing it was Hitler's use of, the, of a quest for a greater Germany in the Second World War. And the international community, for understandable reasons, has rejected that as a justification for the use of force since 1945. And the fact that this is articulated again as a justification for the use of force is, I think, very worrying. And third, I think the third challenge, and in some ways this is, you know, overlaps the others and almost the most important, is that historically stable international orders that meet the minimal requirement of preventing great power war depend on the European experience on agreed norms of security governance. We saw this after the Napoleonic Wars, we saw it after the First World War, we saw it after the Second World War. Yet since the end of the Cold War, this is precisely what has been missing. There have been no agreed norms among the great powers in Europe about security governance. Even the norms that existed during the Cold War, 
gradually built up around that gave a kind of normative institutionalized structure of the Cold War. Think of the Helsinki Accords, which codified European borders, post-war borders. No such rules exist today. And I'll end by saying that one of the most dangerous features of this current crisis is not only are there no agreed norms about security governance in the heart of Europe, there are no agreed norms of security governance in East Asia either. And this represents, I think, a particularly dangerous period in international history, and that one of the key things that's needed going forward is an effort on the part particularly of Western leaders, but also of other leaders, to try and move toward a negotiated set of norms that all major powers in the system can agree on to stabilise the security order. And I'll leave it there. Thank you, Chris. Andrew, over to you. And in typical style, Andrew takes his own time, like stops his own time. Yeah. Okay, folks, I'd like to address three issues. The first is what Putin has sought to achieve in Ukraine. The second, why he has failed so far. And the third, where to from here. So to begin with Putin's objectives, it is essential to note that Vladimir Putin uh, is a revisionist actor in world politics. I use Putin rather than Russia in order to flag that this is a highly personalistic regime and we need to understand Putin's mindset in order to have an understanding of Russian statecraft at the moment. Putin is revisionist to the extent that he is on record as saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. He is unreconciled to the post-Cold War order, both in Europe and beyond. And with respect to Ukraine in particular, his objectives have been, at a minimum, to arrest what he perceives as Ukraine's ideological and geopolitical and economic drift to the West, and at a maximum, to potentially subordinate Ukraine as, in effect, uh, an informal vassal of the Russian state, and in order in, the, in so doing to reclaim what he sees as Ukraine's rightful place within the Ruski Mir, the so-called Russian world. It is worth noting also that Putin has historically been a gambler in undertaking the mission in Ukraine. Uh, his minimum objective is to neutralise Ukraine and bring it back into the Russian orbit. But it's likely that his maximalist objective would have been to seek to produce a crisis that would dramatise NATO's divisions and to ideally weaken, if not break, the transatlantic alliance. Thus far, and keep in mind, we are less than two weeks into the conflict, so predictions difficult, especially about the future. However, Putin so far has failed for the following reasons. The first, and I would say it's the most fundamental, is a misunderstanding of the conditions of victory in 2014. In 2014, Putin was able to secure control of the Crimean Peninsula in an almost bloodless, people have referred to as a hybrid conflict. As a result, he has systematically underestimated the capability and resolve of the Ukrainian military and more broadly, the level of resolve of the Ukrainian government. And there's a certain irony in the way in which things are playing out at the moment. 
Unquestionably, the Ukrainian military performed extraordinarily poorly in the armed conflict in uh, Ukraine in 2014. But as a result, they have systematically sought to rebuild their capabilities in part with Western support. But more broadly, the very effort to try to establish a degree of political control in Ukraine through the consolidation of a frozen conflict in Donetsk and Luhansk has in fact accelerated the shift of Ukraine to the West. So much so that we are now in a situation in which in 2019, the Ukrainian government enshrined a commitment to eventual NATO membership as an element of its constitution. So this has become an institutionalised commitment. More broadly, though, what we have seen is, and I think this is probably certainly from my vantage point as an international relations scholar, uh, the most surprising element here is an underestimation so far of Western unity and resolve and willingness to resist the incursion in Ukraine. It is absolutely remarkable that the NATO alliance has been so overt in its decision to supply military aid to the Ukrainian resistance. Uh, and that's something that uh, must be said. Vladimir Putin would probably be, I don't like to forgive him really for anything, but he would probably be forgiven for underestimating Western resolve in that instance. So where to from here? I am not optimistic about the short to medium term prospects for uh, a peaceful resolution uh, in the Ukraine conflict. Um, the most basic reason for that is a fundamental clash between an outcome that would be acceptable for the Kremlin and an outcome that would be acceptable to Ukraine and to the Ukrainian people more generally. Putin's fear is that any negotiation that was struck, for example, a commitment on the part of Ukraine to recognise Russian suzerainty in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, to accept the uh, dismemberment of their country through the move of Crimea, to accept uh, permanent neutralisation, that this is a bargain that would potentially obsolesce in the event of a Russian withdrawal. Um, and his fears are well-founded there. Uh, it's relatively unknown, but Zelensky was seen by many in Ukraine as being too soft on Russia, too willing to accommodate before the onset of this conflict. There is very little in the way of bargaining room for Zelensky and very little in the way of a common degree of convergence in uh, Ukrainian and Russian interests to facilitate peace. I will end simply on this note that at this point, uh, Putin and the Putin regime are very much boxed into a corner and are boxed into a corner of their own making. Their options are to escalate. And we know that it is likely from what we have seen in the past, whether it be in Grozny, whether it is in Aleppo, that a step to escalate on the part of the Putin regime will be to increase its use of atrocity crimes in order to destabilise Ukraine, in order to further accelerate a refugee uh, refugee flows into Europe in order to try to maximise the level of instability and chaos necessary to push the West to in turn prevail upon Ukraine in order to accommodate Russian desires. The reality, however, is that Ukraine has the capacity to sustain a long-term insurgency, has the capacity, for example, to retrench from Kiev to Lviv or even to maintain the government in exile. Uh, at the end of the day, Ukraine is a country that is larger than France. Uh, Counterinsurgency is an extraordinarily labour-intensive exercise and the Ukrainian government and people retain 
for the foreseeable future the capacity to make any occupation an extraordinarily costly proposition for Putin. So no happy news, but I'll leave it to Sarah to hopefully uh, lighten the mood. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Andrew and Sarah. Yeah, sorry, no lightness here. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the implications of the Ukraine-Russia conflict for China. Uh, in particular, there's been a lot of commentary lately that talks about this arc of autocracy, these fears of authoritarian alignment, saying drawing similarities between Russia and China. And I just want to stress um, the differences between them, particularly when it comes to these, what we see as irredentist claims and questions about what does this mean for the situation in Taiwan in particular. So um, one thing in that regard is that we need to think about Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine as a continuation rather than an aberration in Russian foreign policy when it comes to the use of military force. We see that in Georgia, and in Ukraine, um, Andrew mentioned Ukraine of 2014, we see that earlier, but also more recently in Syria. Um, and in this respect, um, we have commentators noting that military force is in fact, has become a key tool of Russian foreign policy. And that really is not the same when we look at China. China certainly has become more aggressive in recent years. We think about military insta installations in the South China Sea, the um, military confrontations with India for border disputes there. But China has no experience in um, the type of war campaign that Russia is carrying out. It hasn't fought a major military war since 1979 and its invasion of Vietnam. And on top of that, we see a People's Liberation Army that seems to have a much um, higher casualty aversion than we would see on the part of Moscow. There are other lessons from Ukraine that seem to make it even less likely that China would take similar actions in Taiwan. One is that um, Andrew had alluded to the speed at which the world united in opposition to Russia and the scale of the, the sanctions would be unsettling to Beijing. Many experts suggest that um, China will attempt to further sanction-proof its, its economy, but this is incredibly difficult, particularly when we think about the SWIFT system that Russia has been kicked off of. This remains the most efficient system for international financial transactions for banks, and being removed from that system would be potentially devastating to the Chinese economy. We also see that a part, in addition to this um, having less of a um, military action as a tool of foreign policy, that Russia, China is more dispositionally and historically um, sensitive to political isolation than Russia is. So look at um, recent uh, action on the UN Security Council where China has seemed to pay, be taking a more assertive role that has always been jointly with Russia. It's cast these joint vetoes with Russia when it, in regard to the Syria situation. We see that the type of political isolation, not just economic, that Russia is experiencing at the moment runs counter to many of the contemporary narratives about China in the world, how China sees itself and how it sees this idea. We think about 
Um, Xi, Jinping's, Xi Jinping sayings of a common destiny for mankind, that China is out for creating a peaceful, harmonious world, that the political isolation that China is confronting at the moment is more difficult for China to wear than it is for Russia. We also see in Russia at the moment um, an underestimation of not just the scale at which would be isolated internationally, but the amount of domestic protests that are taking place in Russia at the moment. So cities all throughout Russia, we're seeing people come to the street in opposition to this war in a way that even with the coercive power of the Chinese government against uh, its domestic population when it comes to public protest, that this would be um, concerning in the least to think of any amount of domestic um, uh, resistance to the scale that Russia is seeing for its incursions in for its invasion of Ukraine. Then another point, and a point that's been made already, is the, the extent to which Putin drastically underestimated the Ukrainian resistance. Uh, there's some reporting to suggest that China was caught off guard when it came to the invasion, that Russia had given assurances that it wouldn't. I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that there was some forewarning. Most of the intelligence analysts analysis that's been um, publicly reported on suggests that. But what does seem to have caught Xi Jinping off guard is that he believed in Putin's assurance that this would be very short and very swift, that, um, that Ukraine would be subdued within a matter of 24, 48, 72 hours. That has not been the case. And the reason this is confronting or potentially confronting for China is that it has a similar narrative when it comes to Taiwan, that Taiwan, the preponderance of the Chinese military would subdue Taiwan in a relatively short period of time. And the level of resistance both domestically and its isolation externally and its support through advanced weaponry externally, I should say, for Ukraine has, um, is a further deterrent, I would think, for Beijing. That's all even without sort of a sheer military analysis that suggests that Taiwan is better placed than Ukraine to defend itself. Diplomatically, it has a defense pact with the U.S. or a de facto defense pact through the Taiwan Relations Act. And strategically, it has um, it's, it's not so easy to access because it's an island with a complex geography and advanced military. Um, we see also repeatedly that um, in analysis how it China doesn't want to be embarrassed in the way that it, it senses the Russians have been embarrassed. Um, we see, for example, reporting all through Western um, media about Russia as a Potemkin power. And this is something that um, is off-putting or at least a sign of warning for China. And I think I'll wrap it up there because I'm getting some signs. Thank you to the UQ School of Political Science and International Studies for permission to reproduce this episode. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.